Hello, greetings. We're so glad that you've joined us. Thank you for being here today. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. Now, I'm sure that you recognize, as it's generally recognized, that the Bible is what we call the authoritative text for Christianity. And the Hebrew Bible is the authoritative text for Judaism. Now, what does that mean? Now, the idea is generally understood. The Bible says things, right? And Christians try to do those things because the Bible says to do them. Maybe you've noticed that there's some confusion about how this works. The Bible says a lot of things that Christians don't do or don't even want to do. Uh, people understand the Bible very differently at times. Some appeal to other sources of authority. And so that's why it's good for us to spend some time to look at the nature of the authority of the Bible. And to do that, we need to understand what authority is and how it's given. How has God given people the right to deliver his message and judgments if he's done that? And how should we uh, understand authority when the people that God has made that empowerment uh, no longer exist among the living? So let's begin there with the idea of what is authority. Authority is power. The one with power is able to legislate and govern, to make guidelines for behavior and to enforce them. We understand that very clearly with um, government. We understand our government is uh, able to uh, make laws, and if we do not follow those laws, that we will get the due punishment from that uh, authority. Now, the one with a, uh, who has power may give delegate authority to those who are under him, uh, and that uh, is power granted to them to carry out the legislation and governance. So, a police officer is not an elected official, but he is somebody empowered by the state to enforce the laws it has established, uh, as an example. And so empowerment is the authority to, or power to think, feel, or act in a certain way, which is commended or legitimated by the one with authority. So when we go through our lives, for instance, in our, in our country, and we follow the laws, we do the things the law says to do, we are empowered. We are able to do those things, and the state looks kindly upon that. And we are also empowered to avoid doing the things that are against uh, the rules that have been established. Now, important thing to note is that God is a source of all authority. We might appeal to Romans 13.1 when Paul says as much, but we haven't yet uh, demonstrated why we should listen to Paul in Romans 13.1, that, what that might mean. Uh, but we can recognize, hopefully, all of us, that there is a power that a creator has over its creation. So when a human being, for instance, makes something, a computer or a car or a tool, there's a kind of power that the human has over those things because he has fashioned them. He knows the intricacies of the, the thing made and knows the way it's supposed to function and can provide the things necessary to sustain it in its functioning. And so if there is a God who is a creator of all things, he would have greater power over all things, and he would exercise authority according to his purposes. And that is going to be our contention, that there is a God who is our creator and therefore has authority, and will use that authority according to his purposes. Which leads to the question, well, how has God exercised that authority over uh, the creation for his purposes? And it's very important for us to know that by ourselves, we would not be able to know that. Because a creator is greater than us by definition, and he is over us. And so the only way we would know something about God and his purposes is if he made it known to us in some way. When it comes to that, we can look around our environment, something that people have been doing for thousands of years, and noticing that everything works really well and works together. And that there are a lot of forces out there 
that are much stronger than ourselves. And sometimes we might want to forget that, but we'll remember it when we go through a multi-year drought, or there's floods, or there's a tornado, or an earthquake, or a tsunami, or a hurricane, and we're just overawed and struck by the great power uh, that the natural forces have. And that's nothing compared to the forces that we can see in a sun, uh, or in another star, or in a black hole, or things of that nature. People have also uh, noticed that they themselves seem like they are more advanced than the other creatures. They have higher intellect and creativity. They're conscious of their mortality. They appreciate things like aesthetic and beauty, and they seek for truth and meaning in a moral existence. The existence of all these greater forces and this great yearning within us both testify that there is an intelligent creator, that there is, in fact, a god. But we can know of God if God decides to make some things known about himself and his purposes to some people. What if God did communicate to some people regarding his purposes? How could we know? How could we trust that the people who say these things are actually true and aren't just making it up or aren't even sincerely deceived into thinking that they have had communication from some higher power? Well, that God may attest to himself through acts of great power well beyond what humans would be able to accomplish, as spoken by a representative of his choice. And this is what is revealed to us, recorded to us, about what God did in the days of Moses. In Exodus 3-15, through a man named Moses claims to speak for Yahweh, a God who claims to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and of the Israelites, and he says he's going to deliver his people out of Egypt with a strong hand. By his word, plagues were brought upon Egypt, great things beyond the power of man to conjure up, even beyond the dark arts, as the Egyptian magicians themselves would testify. And it would be punctuated by the death of the firstborn and then the splitting of the Red Sea. And when it was all said and done, they believed that Yahweh was the God of Israel and that Moses was his servant that would provide his communication at the end of that section in chapter 14. And this is what leads to the scene that we have in Exodus 20. Yahweh will speak to all Israel at Mount Sinai. And Israel recognized that they heard the voice of God and they were terrified at the voice of God. And so they said, Moses will be our representative. Moses will go up on the mountain. And he will hear the words of Yahweh, and we will tr believe the words that he says are the words of Yahweh. And this is the way that God was going to work with people. He would communicate his purposes through certain men of Israel whom he selected, and he would affirm their messages with manifestations of divine power. So we have, for instance, the story of Elijah in 1 Kings 17 and 18. Elijah tells uh, the king of Israel that, except by his word, there would be no rain in Israel. It stopped raining in Israel. He went and lived away from Israel in, in another land, um, in the land of the Phoenicians, and he stayed in Zarephath, and he stayed at a widow's house, and provided food miraculously. Uh, when the woman's son died, he was able to uh, pray over him, and Yahweh raised him from the dead. And the woman believed that indeed Elijah was a great prophet. Elijah summoned all of Israel and the prophets of Baal to Mount Carmel. And while the prophets and Baal cried out to Baal and nothing happened, when he prayed to Yahweh, fire came down from heaven, consumed an offering, consumed an altar, and all the water that was surrounding the altar. And all Israel believed that Yahweh was God. Elijah then prayed, 
and then rain fell upon the earth. All these things were testifying that Elijah was speaking for Yahweh and Israel should hear it. And many other prophets would speak a word from Yahweh and would warn people about the consequences of their behaviors. But it's worth noting that not everybody spoke in the name of Yahweh because Yahweh spoke to them. And in fact, Yahweh warned that there would be false prophets who would come about and would claim to have uh, said a word from Yahweh when he had not spoken. And he told the people, in verse 22, If the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that Yahweh has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. And so there's a realization that that might happen, but there is a warning and, and it's able to be demonstrated. If it doesn't happen, it wasn't from Yahweh. Now, for most of Israel's history before they were exiled, there were prophets in the land. And the people could and would go to them to hear a word from Yahweh. But then all of a sudden, around the 400s BC, Yahweh stopped speaking to Israel through the prophets. Now had Yahweh abandoned his people? No, not at all. In fact, we can see the hand of God saving his people for 400 years after the prophets uh, stopped rising up in the land. But for the time being, what God had already spoken through the prophets was sufficient to guide his people to understand what they should do and what they would endure and the promise of what was to come. It leads to an important question. Where could Israel access those messages if the prophets were no longer living? Well, they would find them in the records of what the prophets had spoken from Yahweh, preserved in what we call the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. Now, the pattern of the Hebrew Bible begins with Moses himself. Because all Israel recognized that God spoke through Moses. Moses provided the specific legislation God gave to him to give to Israel. But he was also directed by the Spirit of Yahweh to record how God had worked through people in time, setting forth the story of the creation, the fall of man, the flood, the choice of Abraham, the, what the patriarchs did, the exodus and the wandering of Israel in the wilderness. Uh, what we call Torah from Genesis 1 through at least Deuteronomy 32 and verse 47. Now, no one else exactly like Moses would arise until the Christ, both setting forth the historical narrative of God's working with his people and the proclamation of prophetic messages. But after Moses, God did speak through various people and prophets to set forth his purposes and to have those purposes written down for later consideration. Now, this seemed to work in different ways. There are some prophets like Ezekiel who both spoke and wrote down what they spoke. Others, like Jeremiah, proclaimed the message and later would write down all the things that they had prophesied. We can see that a way that works in Jeremiah 36th chapter. Now others, like Hosea, it seems, spoke the word of Yahweh and others later wrote down what they had spoken. That last verse of Hosea seems to be uh, from somebody who has compiled the things Hosea has said. Now all those prophets spoke direct messages of Yahweh to the people. That's what those prophetic messages were about. Other men who were directed by Yahweh's spirit collected the accounts of what had transpired in Israel from Joshua through the end of the exile uh, over time, and they told the story of how God worked with Israel according to his purposes. From these anonymous prophets, we have all of the historical narrative in the Bible from Joshua through Esther and the judgments that they uh, maintain about the kings and what they did. Yahweh also inspired David to write psalms. For Solomon to write Proverbs, the sermon we have in Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. He inspired someone to write the book of Job. 
Now, those Israelites who returned from the exile recognized the authority present in the Hebrew Bible as the inspired revelation of what God decreed for Israel and done for Israel. And they sought to apply that message to their lives in their own context. We see this working in Nehemiah chapter 8. In verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And as it continues there in verse 8, They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So, by the time Ezra stands before the people, around 420 or something of that sort, uh, maybe 450, that area, the law had been given a a whole millennium earlier, uh, around 1450 or so. Um, And so he is having this message read, and then it was explained so they understand what the message means, either updating language or giving an explanation of what the words mean or what the purpose was, and so on and so forth. And what's interesting is in verses 13 through 18 of Nehemiah, they recognize that the time had come for the Feast of Booze. And so therefore they decided that they needed to observe the Feast of Booze according to what had been written. Uh, back in Leviticus 23, uh, 33 through 43, and they observed that feast. And so they understood that God had declared the message from what we call Leviticus, a millennium earlier to Moses, who wrote it down and had it preserved. And they confessed and demonstrated their participation in that covenant God had made with Israel. And they kept the Feast of Booths just has been written, confident that as God authorized them to do so because what have had been written in the past. Now, many would arise in Israel to study the law and the prophets to instruct the people in its message in the days of the Second Temple, from around 530 B.C. until uh, 70 of our era. Um, The need was real, and their purpose was necessary, even if they did not always properly discern God's purposes. And these were the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 7.29, 17.10, 23.2-3. These are the people who um, are seen as the ones who interpret what Yahweh has said so that they can observe it in life. And they may not have done it well all the time, but that is a a role they had, and that role was necessary. Now, when we had talked in Deuteronomy about uh, the prophet, there's a very important prophecy there, because in a couple verses earlier, Moses had said that God would raise up in Israel a prophet like him from the people, and the people were to listen to him. Now, many prophets had arisen in Israel, speaking words from Yahweh. But none were like Moses, until Jesus of Nazareth came, a man attested by God in word and power. And we see throughout the story of Jesus' life that Israel could not deny all the mighty works that he did. They were all consistent with what had been promised regarding the one to come. And of course, it had been promised in the scriptures. And so in John 7 and verse 31, many people said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Which, of course, is a rhetorical question. The answer is no. His instruction was powerful and compelling and with authority. So the Sermon on the Mount that that we hear so popularly in Matthew 5 through 7, where Jesus says, you have heard it said what I say to you, really struck the people in verse 29 of chapter 7 because he spoke as one with authority, not like their scribes, who would always refer back wisely and properly to the authority of the of the Torah, of, of what God had provided as instruction for in the law. 
in John 7, in verse 46, those sent to arrest him could not arrest him. Not because that he, they were uh, physically hindered, but because they were just taken aback at his message. No man had ever spoken like this man. And his claims were startling. He is the son of man, whom the Ancient of Days would give an eternal kingdom and dominion. He spoke as the only son of the Father. He called himself the way, the truth, and the life in John 14, 6 through 7. And Matthew 26, 64, referring to Daniel 7, 13 and 14. But he was executed as a common criminal. But then God raised him from the dead, and that testified that Jesus was his son in an extraordinary way, not unlike his work in the exodus of Israel. And this is something proclaimed in Acts 2, 14-36 and Romans 1, 4. God then gave Jesus all authority in heaven and on earth, and he rules as Lord of all to this day. And it's in this way that God has given his authority to Jesus, who is God the Son and the Son of Man. A good question to ask is, how do we know this about Jesus? He didn't write anything down in his life. But in his ministry, we can see in Matthew 10, 1-4, he selected 12 men to become his special disciples. Those 12 would be eyewitnesses of all that Jesus said and did, and of his resurrection. And he gave them specific power. He gave them the keys of the kingdom of heaven, the ability to proclaim the message. And he gave them the authority to bind and loose whatever had been bound and loosed in heaven. In Matthew 16, 18, 19, and 18, 18. When he arose from the dead and ascended, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to empower the twelve to proclaim the good news of what God had done in him, the redemption of Israel to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to testify to the power of God. It's been seen in John 14 through 16 and Acts 2 through 6. In this way, the twelve disciples become the twelve apostles. And these apostles are then commissioned to proclaim the good news of salvation to Gentiles as well as Jews. That now everybody could come to God, put their trust in Jesus, obtain the promise uh, that had been given, and obtain their participation in the kingdom and eternal life. In Acts 10 and 11, Romans 1 through 11. In fact, the Lord Jesus also would particularly choose Saul of Tarsus, who would become Paul, to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles, and gave him the power to do so in Acts 9, 1 through 18. And so, the apostles themselves, or their associates, would write the story of what God accomplished in Jesus for posterity, for in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then what took place in the early church in Acts. These apostles wrote many letters to churches and individuals. These are the writings that would become the New Testament. So, it's important to remember, God gave Jesus authority, all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus gave the apostles authority to bind and loose whatever had been bound and loosed. Now, the apostolic authority was less really about them as human beings and more about what they saw and what they could testify to. And they have a very unique role. Because Jesus dies only once for all. No future generation was going to see Jesus come back, live, suffer, die, and be raised again. Because the death he died, once he died for all, and for good, death no longer has power over him in Romans 6, 1 through 11. And so, the apostolic authority to uh, make these declarations based on what they had seen and heard could not be transferred. No one else could provide eyewitness testimony to the events surrounding Jesus. No one else could add details about how Jesus lived based on eyewitness experience, as is seen at the end of the Gospel of John in chapter 20 and 21. I think this is the reason why Paul says in Ephesians 2.20, the apostles are part of the foundation of the church, because our basis of understanding about Jesus and his purposes and his kingdom are from them. Yes, they are asleep, they await the resurrection, but yet they still speak through their words preserved in the New Testament. When we read them aloud, it's as if they're speaking to us yet again. 
And apostolic authority itself was not based on anything terribly special about the men themselves. I mean, they were very unexceptional men, fishermen, tax collector. It was rooted in what they had experienced in regards to the Christ, the word of life, 1 John 1, 1 through 4. And so the keys to the kingdom of heaven is not some kind of authority to be God's bouncer. It's the message of the gospel itself. In Romans 1, 16, it's the power of God and the salvation. And it's rooted in who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf and the fact that he reigns as Lord right now in the resurrection. And so God works to save people through their trust in Jesus as Lord, having lived, died for their sins, and raised to life forevermore. This is the gospel that we go and proclaim. And this connection is very nicely illustrated in Revelation 1, chapter 6, chapter 1, verse 16, chapter 2, and verse 12, and verse 16, uh, where Jesus has a sword that comes out of his mouth, which is the word of God in Hebrews 4.12. So it's Jesus who is a real authority. He exercises that authority through the Spirit and through his word that he speaks. And it's this way that the New Testament is authoritative for Christians. Because it provides the basis of understanding of what God has done in Jesus and how Jesus would have us live in the kingdom to advance his purposes. And this is why the Hebrews author begins his letter uh, with the following. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus, uh, also after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He has power. God, he, was, he was active in the creation. He uh, is the character of God manifest. He is now the one through whom God speaks to us when God had spoken previously through the prophets. So, what do we mean to say about the authority of the Bible? The Bible's authority is not in and of itself, but as the inspired recording of what God has done and made known about himself and how he's interacted with mankind, first with Israel and now fully in Jesus Christ. Therefore, what the Bible says we will do is a short form for what really means we will do what God authorizes and empowers us to do, and we understand what God authorizes and empowers on the basis of what he has made known in Scripture in terms of Christ and his purposes according to proper interpretation. That's a mouthful, and that's why the long form tends not to be used very often. We resort to the short form, which is okay as long as we know that the short form is a shortened version of the long form. The problem is that people very easily fall into the trap of thinking that the short form is all there is. That the end of all things is to do what the Bible says in and of itself. Now, Romans 15.3, 1 Corinthians 10.1-12, and 2 Timothy 3.15-17 testify that there is value in understanding, getting encouragement and instruction for how God related Israel in the Old Testament. But Ephesians 2, 11 through 18, Colossians 2, 14 through 17, and Hebrews 7 through 9 is a warning about doing anything just because Israel did it, recognizing that uh, there was a division uh, that happened, that uh, Jesus healed that division because the division came from the law of ordinances containing commandments that he set aside by nailing it on the cross. Um, that when there is a change of priesthood, there is by necessity a change of law. And so we don't do anything just because Israel did it. We do what we do in terms of what Jesus would have us do in his kingdom based on his authority. So there's a lot of things that are going to be consistent between the covenants. But in certain things, like certain dietary restrictions, certain uh, uncleanness, cleanliness commands, um, uh, slaughtering Philistines, 
things of that nature. That is not appropriate for the Christian because of what we have learned in Christ. Now, we have no one left alive who saw Jesus in his life. We trust that Jesus is Lord in heaven, and that if we do what he tells us to do in the New Testament, we will be found pleasing in his sight. If anybody were to claim that they should do something because God had given them a special revelation, how would we be able to validate or condemn such a thing? But we'd have to go back to what we know has been revealed by the Spirit in Scripture. And that is why we need to interpret the Bible to understand what God would have us to do to serve Jesus in the 21st century. It's a two-edged sword. On the one hand, interpretation, not always accurate. We cannot accept false teachings or doctrines which twist and distort God's purposes in Christ, which he warned us about in 1 Timothy 4, that there will be those who follow the doctrines of demons in 2 Peter 3, 16-17, that the unstable twist and distort what Paul had said. But interpretation, which is right and consistent with God's purposes in Christ, must be accepted for what it is, a proper application of God's word and therefore God's authority and binding upon all to accomplish it. Just like with the apostles, it's not really about them as people, so it is with the messenger of God's word. It's not really about the person, it's about the message. And the message is all about what God has accomplished for his people, first for Israel and then in Jesus, so that all may recognize that God loves mankind, the power God gave Jesus, and how we might follow Jesus that God may be glorified. And that is why it is so important for us to accept the truth of what God has made known in Christ and in the Bible, the Word of God, to serve Jesus to obtain the resurrection of life. We're so glad that you've joined us again. If you've benefited by this, please feel free to share it with uh, friends and others on social media. If uh, we can be of any service, you'd like to talk more about uh, what you've heard today, maybe you have a prayer request or want to say the Bible, you just want to check us out, please find us online at VenticeChurchOfChrist.org. We're also on social media. And if I can be of service, you'd like to reach out to me personally, you can reach me through my website at verbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. I again thank you, and we hope and pray that you have a blessed day.